Christmas Eve service, just part of your normal uh, celebration of Christmas time. And then, of course, on Christmas Day, we'll be having church on Christmas Day. Like, of, of course we would be having church on Christmas Day, right? Like, you wouldn't say, hey, let's not celebrate. Um, it has never made any sense to me whatsoever. I'm not trying to be judgmental. But when churches cancel church on Christmas when it lands on Sunday, I think, wait a second, hold on, like, you're missing, like, the whole point. Like, if ever we should be happy that Christmas falls on Christmas on a Sunday, like, we should be happier. Like, hey, this makes perfectly good sense that we would gather together with other believers on Christmas Day, okay? So don't miss it. Uh, it's going to be a really special weekend, both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, even though I won't be here. But I will be in church, on, on, probably on Christmas Eve and definitely on Christmas Day, okay? Um, if you're a guest, I, I can't, I'm not sure if there are any like first-time guests with us here this morning. There might be one or two. Um, and there are some of you who are newer to our church. If you're a guest, please know that we at Liberty, for the most part, we preach through books of the Bible. And every now and then we'll take a, a, a season and we'll preach through a topic or a theme. Or you know, sometimes during the month of December, we'll preach a series of sermons uh, that focus on on Christmas, I've done that uh, numerous times in the past, and sometimes we'll do like I'm doing right now. We just continue to preach through the book of the Bible that we're in, and then I know next Sunday, uh, Matt's got a, a sermon, a Christmas-oriented sermon uh, for you um, that he's preparing. Um, and, but but the, the overwhelming majority of the preaching that we do here at Liberty is we just take a book of the Bible and we preach our way through it. That's a, that's a, a choice, a decision, a, a philosophical choice that we've made, right? Like there's a reason that we're doing that, that the Word of God was given to us in books. There are 66 books that, are, that make up this. And instead of me determining which portion of it I'm going to preach and what I want to say, we just think, okay, if God said it and laid it out this way, then let's just, let's just look at it the way, God, the way God laid it out. That also means, since we're committed to that kind of uh, philosophical choice, it also means that there are going to be times where we're going to preach and cover passages that some pastors and some churches never will get around to covering. And if you're a guest with us today, you're here on one of those Sundays. You're here on one of those Sundays. And instead of apologizing, I actually hope that all of us will see how seriously we take that commitment to God's Word being what we need to hear. And we believe that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out and is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, even... 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, which say, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. I'm just feeling warm Christmas vibes, aren't you? For, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. 
For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Father, help us as we look into your word, which we believe to be true and breathed out by God and profitable for us a week before Christmas. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If a man walked into our assembly this morning wearing a skirt, we would notice. If a woman walked into our assembly this morning with her head completely shaven, we would notice that both of those things would stand out at least as unusual in our setting. If a man walked in wearing long, dangling earrings, we would notice. If a woman walked in with her midriff, her belly showing, but wearing a head covering at the same time, we would notice something would seem really strange to us about those things. If a man walked in wearing a long, gray-haired wig, we would notice these things. With each of these things, I think we would stop and take notice, and there would be at least this enormous question mark in our minds like, what's going on? That's unusual. That doesn't fit here. Why? Because, because we in our West Texas, modern American culture are not used to those things. But let's walk back through each of these scenarios here. If we are in the country of Scotland at the Highland Games and we see a man in a skirt, do you just immediately assume that he's a wimp and he's being effeminate and you can walk up to him and beat him up? No, no. I think I've told you before, my brother-in-law, Uncle Paul, competes in the Highland Games. He wears a skirt. Paul is six foot four and weighs about 250 pounds. He's uh, a mountain of a man. And you don't look at Paul and go, you know what? I think he's working through a gender transition, even when he's wearing a kilt. If we were to 
go into a, a community in Togo, West Africa, and see a woman with her head shaved of her hair? Would we question whether or not she's being unsubmissive or inappropriate or communicating something inappropriate in some way? No, in that, in that culture, that's a relatively common thing. If we were to walk into the jungles of Papua New Guinea and find the tribal leader there with long dangling earrings hanging from his ears, would, would we have the same kind of feelings if Frank walked in this morning with long dangling earrings? If we were in the country of India and a woman wearing her sari, I think maybe so, there's, there's, a, there's a name for their for their wrap, this kind of a pant wrap suit thing, and then they have a head covering thing as well. But they often have their midriff. Their belly is, is a, you can see it, right? And if we were in India, would that same belly showing walking into our congregation here this morning, would it, would it even catch our attention? I, I, I don't think so. Because, because what we do and when we do it does matter, and it does communicate what's in our hearts. What we do and when we do it, it does matter, and it does communicate what's in our heart. Oh, the guy with the long gray wig, right? If we walked into a courtroom in England during the 17th century and saw a guy with a long gray powdered wig on, we wouldn't, we wouldn't disrespect him. We would actually honor and respect him with a long gray powdered wig on. Because place and time and culture and location all affect what we do and why we do it. I'm going to use some of these thoughts as we walk through these passages, this passage this morning. Here's the main point this morning. God's, God's plan for men and women flows from and points to the gospel. God's plan for men and women flows from and points to the good news of Jesus Christ. The first questions that we have of this passage are actually not the most important questions of this passage. The ones that we feel a burning desire to get answered quickly, come on, Jeremy, cut to the chase. Tell us about what's that phrase because of the angels. What does that mean? I am going to answer that, but I'll go ahead and tell you how I'm going to answer it. I don't know. I, I've, got a, I've got a guess that is an educated guess, an informed guess, but ultimately, if you disagree with me, I'll just say, okay, okay, that's a, that's a good answer too. Are women supposed to be wearing hats? Do men have to take their hats off when someone is praying? What does this passage, what did, we're going to get to those. We're going to answer those questions as best I can. But brothers and sisters, those actually aren't the most important parts of this passage. That's not the most important thing that Paul is trying to communicate. In this passage, I believe there are some timeless truths that Paul is seeking to, to work deep into the hearts and lives of the Corinthians. And, then, and I believe that there are some cultural applications of those timeless truths. Now, I've read a lot and listened to a lot and talked to a lot of people over this last week. 
I would be almost, it would be unfair for me not to just say that I did listen to a couple of sermons by Pastor David Platt that helped me tremendously in shaping out and thinking through this. I had a long conversation with my mother-in-law on, on this passage, and she's, she taught women's studies uh, at Bob Jones for years, and she's spent hours and hours and hours, and well, yeah, uh, she, she taught this. These verses were a three-day part of her uh, lecture series. Um, so I'm, I'm taking a lot of information and trying to give it uh, to us, to you here in 31 more minutes. So the first questions, uh, I don't believe, are the most important questions. But let's cover what I do believe are the timeless truths. First of all, there are some timeless truths. Point number one, timeless truths. There are some timeless truths in this passage. And we know they're timeless truths because they're all throughout the Bible. The first one, I believe, is this, that God's roles are right. God's, God's roles, as he defines and describes them for men and women, God's roles are right. Let's just actually take them in order, though, as they're presented here in this passage. In chapter 11, verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Christ is the head of every man. Now, you're wanting me to jump ahead to what a woman has to wear on her head. But if we don't get this right first, we will absolutely miss the importance of whether or not a woman's supposed to have something other than her hair on top of her head. Christ is the head of every man. And here the word man is used like it is so often in Scripture, not referring to male masculinity, but to humanity. Christ is the head of humanity. And brothers and sisters, this phrase, I believe, is the most important part of this whole passage. This phrase is the one that should grab and arrest our attention first, foremost, and most clearly. The rest of the passage doesn't make sense unless we first come to the realization that Jesus Christ is the head of all humanity. He is the head of all humanity. Some of you don't acknowledge him as your head. Some of you don't want Jesus to be in charge, messing with your life and screwing around with what you think is important and how you want to live your life. And that's what you just want a little, enough of Jesus to get you out of the, the fireplace. But, but like uh, bowing myself in submission to another, nah, I'm not into that. Look, whether you acknowledge him as that or not does not change the fact that he is the head of humanity. Christ is Lord. And what you do with that statement, Christ is Lord, what you do with that statement is the most important decision of your life. It's the most important decision of your life. It's more important than who you marry or where you live or how you work or how much money you have or what... That the most important thing that you will ever determine or decide or have a say in is uh, how you respond to the statement, Christ is Lord. See, see, Christ is Lord, and he calls you to bow your knee in submission and to call upon him as your Lord and Savior. He wants your joyful submission and obedience, men and women. And what we see in this first phrase will set the tone and help us understand everything else we're going to see in this passage. Christ is the head of every man. Look again, verse 3. I want you to understand. Look, Paul isn't saying, I want you to understand something about head coverings. He's saying, I want you to understand something before we talk about head coverings. I want you to understand that Christ is the head 
of every man. The head of every man is Christ. And Christ being the head of every man, actually, when he comes to earth, he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And how does Christ use that authority? In his life here on earth, how does Christ use the authority that is given him? He's the head of every man, so what does he do? What does he do with it? How does he show us that headship? He loves and he serves, he sacrifices and he dies. Christ is the head of all humanity. You already see where this is going. You already see where this is going. If the husband is the head of the wife, you you should already be seeing where this is going. If Christ is the head of humanity, and in his authority, in his power, in his headship, he lays himself down on a cross and dies for those he is the head of, The Messiah comes to earth as a baby, right? We're celebrating Christmas. He comes to earth as a baby, but for a reason and for a purpose, and not just so that we can have presents or that we can uh, celebrate uh, uh, Christmas time. And again, Christians should be the ones who celebrate the best. The Messiah comes to earth as a baby for the purpose of going to the cross, upon which he will give his life in order to bring life to those he is the head of. And now for those who submit to his lordship, he is providing, loving, serving, covering headship. So see Christ. I've got a cross here lit behind me. See Christ bloodied and dying on the cross to serve those he is the head of. Now with that in mind, with that picture in your mind, let's read the next phrase. The head of a wife is her husband. The husband is the head of his wife. Bloody Jesus dying for mankind is the head of mankind, and now the husband is the head of the wife. So already we have some ideas of what this means, that a husband must be willing to go to all costs to give himself in loving, self-sacrificial service to his wife. And if it's not clear enough from this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, makes it crystal clear clear. Husbands, love your wives, but it doesn't end there. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That phrase, gave himself up for her, that means he he died for her. That's what that means. It doesn't just mean that he helps her with the dishes sometimes. The headship of the husband can so quickly get abused and misunderstood. Wicked men have misused this and other passages to mistreat and undervalue and silence women when what is abundantly clear in the scriptures is that the headship of the man means flourishing and life and blessing to his wife. When headship is properly understood, many men should rethink whether or not they're really ready for marriage. Male headship is not having a John Wayne attitude with your wife. It isn't having a male chauvinist attitude. It's having a willingness to serve and serve and serve and serve and serve and then die for the good of your wife. So, brothers in the room, let me ask you for a moment. Let me just ask you a question. Is your wife flourishing because you're her husband. 
is your wife receiving life from you because you are her husband. Not is your wife doing okay in spite of you being her husband. Not is she frustrated because you're frustrating or because you're passive or is she frustrated that you aren't leading, but, but rather are you, are you the head of your wife the way Christ served the church? So we always, women balk at submission, but and often, and you know, he even used the word, the S word in church, submission, right? Everybody in our culture, no one wants to even acknowledge such a thing. But when, when the husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church, Submission is the joyful, obvious response to that. Does the husband me being the head of the wife mean that men are superior to or better than or more important than or of more value than women? Many have believed that that's what this meant. And if it's not obvious enough just from considering the husband-wife relationship, most of the husband-wife relationships in this room, like I look around the room and I know most of the husbands and most of the wives and it's obvious which of the two has more talent, more skill, more capacity, right? Is better with people, right? And it's not us dudes. But we're tempted to think this sort of foolish thing. And the next phrase though makes it crystal clear that headship does not mean superiority or greater worth or greater value or more important identity. Because God's not done, Paul's not done laying out for the Corinthians how this whole headship thing works. Again, verse 3, the head of every man, every human, is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And in this last phrase, we would run past what we need to stop and think about. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ who is God is God who is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father in some way, shape, or form is the, is the head of Jesus Christ who is God. So does that mean that, that Jesus Christ is inferior to, less important than, less significant than God the Father? Well, of course not. God is not superior to, better than, more important than, or of more value than Jesus Christ. Christ himself says, I am the Father are one. God the Father is not superior to, better than, more important than, or of more value than Jesus Christ. Therefore, a husband is not superior to, better than, more important than, or of more value than his wife. Are God the Father and God the Son in the scriptures given different roles? Is there a differentiation between the two? Yes. Different does not mean one is better and one is worse. Different does not mean superiority, inferiority. Different means different. I love this quotation from G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton. He says this, if I set the sun beside the moon, and, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the flower beside the fruit, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set a man beside a woman, 
I suppose some fool would talk about one being better than the other. So often, when we think about two different things, our minds immediately think, well, if they're different, one is better than the other. Different does not communicate those things. And here in this passage, God is the head of Christ, and we see that in the garden, Christ submits his will to the will of the Father by saying, Father, not, not my will, but thine be done. And in the role, the different roles within the Trinity, Jesus Christ submits his will to that of the Father, not because he is less, not because he is inferior, not because he has less value than, but he submits his will to the will of another. And all of us, brothers and sisters, have, have ways and areas in life where we have to submit our will to the will of another. Police officer pulls you over. Are you inferior to? Are you less valued than? Does God love you less? No. But when the lights come on in your rearview mirror, you know, i I got to submit my will to the will of another. That's just how this thing works. And here in this passage, we get another picture of what submission looks like. Not just in the relationship between husband and wife, but in the relationship between God and Jesus Christ the second person of the Godhead. God in his kindness established this, these, these role differences. They're established in the very uh, founding of creation. God makes the man first and then he makes the woman. And later in this very passage, we're not gonna be able to dig through every single phrase in, in incredible detail today. We just don't have time to do that. But late, as you read through this passage, man was... Um, uh, uh, God made man in his image, and then from man, the first woman was made. And now, I mean, there, there was only one woman made from man, and now every other man and woman comes from a woman, right? So, so God, in his kindness, has established from the beginning that, that, um, uh, that, uh, that man is the head of, uh, uh, a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. And, and so these God's roles, first of all, uh, under the timeless truths, uh, letter A would be God's roles are good. And then secondly, under timeless truths, we see that gender differences are good. Gender differences are good. Now, as soon as I say that, everyone in here is aware that our world is attacking this actively today. We see in this passage some wonderful truths about the goodness of God and the distinction of the sexes. God made man and woman different. Man was made from dirt. All right, that explains a lot, doesn't it? God was made from, a man was made from dust to rule the earth under God, and woman was made from man to be a helper and a completer, suitable and helpful to him. Verses 8 and 9 of this passage, I, I just referenced a minute ago. And in fact, these... Um, uh, and, and verses 11 to 12 make it clear that different doesn't mean better and worse. And these differences are by design. In fact, there's a great book called Different by Design, and it talks about the, uh, the differences between the sexes. Different, different is actually good. Aren't you glad your spouse isn't just exactly like you? Yeah, me too. Different is good. And in fact, much of this passage deals with maintaining a distinction between the genders. Why the hat, no hat, hair, no hair? Why is all of this being talked about? Because, because even at the time of Corinth, 
the, the, the confusing of genders was already underway, right? This was already a sin, just like it was in their culture. It is in our, cult, like it w- is in our culture. It was in their culture. And Paul was saying, no, 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 God has done something wonderful in making d- two distinctly different genders. We've become so scared of not being politically correct that we've lost our way, even in the church, I'm afraid. We're afraid to say that something is manly or that something is womanly because we're afraid of ever acknowledging that there is a difference. Well, there is a difference. Thank God. We're different. We're different by God's good design. Our bodies are different. Our emotions are different. The way we nurture is different. You ever watch a a dad with his five-year-old and a mom with her five-year-old, right? The dad's like encouraging him to jump off the roof, right? And the mom is, you know, panicking. Mm-hmm. And, and that, what does that five-year-old need? He needs, he, needs both, he needs both of those, right? He needs dad to push him into some brave things and mom to keep him from dying. That's a little bit of a joke in our home. Angie keeps us from dying. Um, I, if, it, if, she wasn't, <laughs> if she wasn't in our home, the other five of us would be dead, I'm pretty sure. The way we interact is different. Our priorities are different. And I know that many of you would say you hate the blurring of genders in our world today, and yet much of the strife in your own marriage is because you want your spouse to be just like you. Well, they aren't, and that's by good, God's good design. Now, in our world right now, it is true that many are, are struggling with whether it's same-sex attraction or confusion regarding their gender. This is all over our world. I heard yesterday, many of you are familiar with the American Girl Doll Company. Let me read to you a little bit from one of their most recent uh, children's books. This is, this is a children's book. There's a, I'm literally, I have the cutout of the page in my notes here. There's a, there's a cartoon accompanying this. Being transgender is not an illness or something to be ashamed of. If you're questioning your gender identity or if you already know for sure that you're trans or non-binary, talk with an adult you trust, like a parent or school counselor. That person can connect you with a specially trained doctor who can help you and your family decide what's best for your body. At first, you and the doctor might talk about wearing the clothes and using the pronouns, like he, she, or they, that make you feel most like the true you. If you haven't gone through puberty yet, The doctor might offer medicine to delay your body's changes, giving you more time to think about your gender identity. And if you've already gone through puberty, a doctor can still help. Studies show that transgender and non-binary kids who get help from doctors have much better mental health than those who don't. Now, I'm not meaning to be mean and unkind and angry and frustrated with what is kind of like the sin in here that we all agree. Yeah, man, let's get fired up and riled up about that. Listen, I, I know that many of you have loved ones in your family who are wrestling with these things and struggling with things. I, I think that many of you have friends in the community and schoolmates, classmates who are struggling with this, these things. And in a room this size, I can almost guarantee that there are those who, who have or will even wrestle and struggle with these kinds of issues. God's word has hope and help for all sorts of the brokenness and sinfulnesses that we face in our lives. The gender differences are good. This problem isn't going away. It's in our community. It's in our schools. And we have to say, we have to say what God says. If, if, if 
if we are unwilling to say what God says on a topic like this, then let's just close our Bibles and our doors and we'll go pheasant hunting, right? Like there's better things to do, but, but God's word does, does have a word on this and it's not a mean and unkind and judgmental and harsh word. It's, it's a good and helpful word for us. If we're not willing to stand on what God says about a wife's submission, then it's not long until we're aren't unwilling to stand on what God's word has to say about human gender. And then it's not long until we aren't willing to stand on what God's word says about sin and then salvation, and then we have nothing left. But, but God's word is true. And we can trust the one who hung on the cross to take care of us and to speak truth to us about roles and relationships and gender and sex. But because we live in a world that is broken and sinful, we live in a world where people do question gender and sexuality. So the church, the church must be full of these two things. The, there's a few of you in here who are in my, uh, my, my junior high Bible class at, uh, at BCA. You, you know what these two things are, these, these, two, these two C words that we as Christians need to be full of in order to reach the world that we live in. We need to be full of conviction, and we need to be full of compassion. This building, filled with this group of people, should be one of the safest and most loving places a person struggling with sin can be, regardless of the sin with which they're struggling. Because there isn't any of us who aren't struggling with sin. We just struggle with sins that are a little bit, in our opinion, neater and cleaner, and, or we just don't tell anyone. This building with this group of people should be one of the safest and most loving places a person struggling with sin can be, regardless of the sin. And if that offends you, then be aware that the pride in your heart causing you to feel that way is likely the sin God hates most. These six things does the Lord hate. Seven are an abomination to him. And the first that's listed is what? A proud look. What we've looked at thus far have been some timeless truths from God's passage, from this passage. Two, two big ones, right? That God's roles are right. God's genders are good. But what about hats and hair? Can men have long hair? What if a woman has really short hair? Does the man have to take off his hat to pray? Does a woman have to have a hat on to pray? This brings us to point number two, and I'll go much more quickly because I only have nine minutes left. Cultural application. Let's talk about some of the cultural application then, and then we're going to talk about some of the cultural application now. I believe... Well, let me back up. So, in, in, the, in the context of the Corinthians, bef before we determine, before I even make the pronouncement that their culture should be, or our culture should be different than theirs, maybe we would possibly make different application, let's just start with how Paul is making application of these big, timeless truths to the people there at Corinth. Paul says this, So, men, don't pray or prophesy with your head covered because it is an obvious and overt sign that you're dishonoring 
the one true God. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. And again, so many different commentaries, so many different places we can study about the culture and the history and the culture of the time. It was inappropriate for men to have long hair that looked feminine, both inside the church and outside the church. Both inside the church and outside the church, they, uh, men with, with long hair were viewed as potentially effeminate, homosexual. And the practice of a man covering his head while he would pray was often practiced by the pagans in their temple worship. So Paul, being aware of these things, says, look, in you Corinthians, you, you know that like when, when a man's growing his hair out long and he's, he's seeking to look effeminate, look, it, nature teaches you that it, it's not okay for you to look that way. You're supposed to be identifiable as the gender God created you. So men don't, don't have long hair and, and don't, the pagans pray, they cover up their heads when they pray, men, you're the image and glory of God. Take your hat off and, and pray directly to God. So Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, and one of the ways that God's design for the sexes was to be honored and true Christian worship was to be practiced. Was God did not want men to have hair that was long and feminine or a head that was covered in worship. It made sense. Paul is saying, judge for yourselves. You know, you know culturally that this is how things are. And the women are instructed to pray and prophesy with their heads covered because to not do so was an obvious and overt sign that they were dishonoring the one true God by not honoring the relationship that they had with their husband. And again, in that culture, women with, with very short hair or shaved head, were this was a dishonorable thing. This was the kind of practice of prostitutes, temple prostitutes, slaves, these, these were people who had their heads, their heads shaved. They didn't have the glory of their long hair. Women with, with beautiful long hair that was put on display and at times thrown around and put on display were telegraphing their availability. This was actually often also part of prostitution. Like the images that might come up, come to mind of a, of a, of a woman on a street corner, right? Okay, Bourbon Street, New Orleans, late at night, mini skirt, low cut blouse, you know something about that woman. She's telegraphing something about who she is, what kind of woman she is. I'm available, I'm flirtatious, right? She's, she's, she's communicating something about her character, about her belief, about her faith by the, by the way that she's dressing. And Paul is addressing the Corinthians and he's saying, look, you know, you know in your culture, outside the church, inside the church, what these kinds of things mean. Nature teaches us these things. And so men uncover your heads and, and women, women cover your heads. Now, we have to ask ourselves, in our culture, in our present day culture, do those same things mean these same things? And here's where I, I want to come back to those opening illustrations that I used, right? If, if one of you men walked in this morning wearing a skirt, I think it would be communicating something other than what the Scottish guys at the Highland Games are communicating, right? Those guys are tough, manly men. This is warrior, clan, dress, right? Skirt. I don't think they call them skirts. 
they'd probably beat me up if I called them a skirt, right? Like, it's, it's a kilt. But, but in that context and in that culture, it communicates very clearly who you are, what you believe, where you are in the family, in the tribe, in the clan, that sort of thing. At Corinth, these, these practices communicated what was inside a person's heart. And so we have to ask ourselves this, do these practices even communicate anything similar today in, in our context? So for now, I, I know that the timeless truths, we know that the timeless truths of God must be honored and obeyed even today. We must honor God's plan for distinct roles between husband and wife. We must see the glory of God in the distinctly different genders. And we must live in a way that in our culture and in our context makes those, difference ob- those differences obvious and that we find them to be glorious. I know that's true. That's what I know. Now I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't think that those same cultural practices communicate the same things today that they did then. I don't think. I don't think that in our modern Western world that a woman walks into church with her long hair uncovered and people begin whispering, oh, look at her. Look how scandalous. Look at all her glory hanging out all over the place. My goodness, she's here with her husband and has no hair covering on. She must be so unsubmissive. She must be one of those kind of, right? Like the reason we're laughing is because I don't, think anyone came in with their head covered. Megan, yours isn't like borderline there. You got like a little band thing there that's covering it up a little bit. So I think that those cultural practices are not the point for us to take away. And I don't think they must be maintained today. That being said, if you come from a place where it is the custom and it is the culture, and everyone in your community, your world, your church, your tribe, they do understand head coverings and head uncoverings in this Corinthian way, then it, then it would be right, and it would be appropriate to walk in in defiance of that culture and to communicate overtly something that isn't true of you, right? Like to walk in in an unsubmissive spirit would actually be going against what God is intending these verses to be for us. So let me read what I've written here, uh, lest I misspeak. That being said, if you come from a place where that is the custom, then you should abide by these practices. Lest your behavior give the message that you are rebellious and pushing against God's good design. And, and if you're here and your conscience is still convinced that this, by wearing a head covering, that this is the way that God would have you practice, then I honor that. And you're welcome to wear your head covering to the glory of God. We actually have quite a few families who come from other cultures and other backgrounds where this is practiced. Don't go against your conscience. So let me try to answer 
a few questions that I know you all want to know. First of all, what's up with the angels? I'm almost done. What's up with the angels? Um, I told you I don't know. Some say that it's referring to pastors that cover your head because uh, the, these messengers, the, the word angels is messengers in the book of Revelation. The messengers are referring to the pastors of the churches. I don't find that particularly convincing. Um, the best explanation that I'm aware of is um, the angels are watching. What does that mean? Uh, the angels were there when Satan rebelled against God and was thrown out of heaven with a third of the rest of the fallen, uh, the, a third of the rest of the angels. The angels were there watching when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit. So Satan rebelled and the angels were watching. Adam and Eve were rebellious and the angels were watching. The angels are watching us. And when we act out in rebellion toward God's will and ways or toward our husband or our authority's will and ways, can you imagine the panic in an angel's heart when they see someone rebellious? That's the best illustration. Uh, that's the best explanation I can come up with that, that I've heard is that the angels are watching and they of all people are like, please don't rebel. Please do things God's way. We've seen the mess that this gets everything into. Please submit and be obedient to God's will and God's way. Okay, that's the best I have on the angels. Secondly, second question, can men have long hair? Well, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you can have long hair only if it's to the glory of God and for the good of others, not if it confuses gender. Not if it confuses gender. What if a woman has really short hair? Can a woman have really short hair? Only to the glory of God and for the good of others. Not if it confuses gender. Does a man have to take his hat off to pray? Does the culture view it as shameful and inappropriate and as dishonoring to God? I think this is the hard, actually the hard, one of the hardest questions to try to answer from this question because we do that, right? Every man in here, take your hat off while we pray, right? Are you supposed to hand it to the woman next to you, right? Like I'm taking my hat off, so I'm, my head's uncovered and your head needs to be covered. That's consistent with this passage. If you th now, culturally speaking, we do that because it's an honorable thing, right? But if you say, a man has to take his hat off because this passage says he has to, then you have to make sure your wife's wearing one while you pray, okay? That's the only lot biblically consistent thing you can do, right? That, in my opinion, I think. Does a woman have to take a hat off to pray? Well, does the culture view it as shameful and inappropriate, as dishonoring to God? Is there confusion about her spirituality, her morality, and her relationship to her husband? These are the answers to these questions. I know God wants the timeless truths honored. I think in our modern culture, in our modern context, these same practices don't communicate what they communicated then. But I want you to know, as a congregation, if there are those of you in here who are still just unconvinced or uncertain, then you, then you follow God. But the most important, the most important part is this, that humanity, men and women, that we have hearts that are submissive to the one true God. That men are leading their wives, that, are, that, that men are the head of their wives in a way that is self-sacrificial to the point of dying. And that women are willing to be submissive. God's ways are always best. His roles for gender and sexuality are right. Husbands lead and serve their wives. Wives submit and serve their husbands. 
The differences and distinction between men and women are good and should be maintained. Now, I said at the beginning that my main point, can you go back a couple slides to my main point slide? Uh, my, I said my main point was this, that, that all of this flows from and points back to the gospel. Christ loved and gave himself up for the church. So what should the church do? She, she should lovingly give her life to him. And the husband is to lovingly give himself up for his wife, and she should lovingly give herself to him. And we have to make sure that we do that in our culture. Is this different than the lost world around us? Yes. It was different in Corinth, and it's different today. Bow your heads with me. I'm not going to ask the musicians to come right now. We're going to transition to the business meeting here in just a moment. But if there is someone here this morning, and you've never bowed your heart in submission to Christ as the Lord of your life. Do that today. Repent of your sins and call upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. For many of us in here this morning, we're aware that we're not the husbands or we're not the wives that God intends for us to be. There may need to be some repenting to God and some asking of forgiveness of a spouse. For many in here, there's just a growing understanding, like a lot of the information that we went through this morning, maybe was new for you. And I, I, want, I want, I think of our young people in here, our children, our teenagers, I want, I want their hearts and minds to be settled with conviction from the word of God and to be full of compassion for those who they're going to interact with who disagree. Father, would you please use the preaching of your word this morning for your glory and for our good. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are going to transition now. We're gonna, we will have a closing song here in just a little bit. Sorry.